I'm Jan Marshall from Melbourne Business School. With me today is Cordelia Fine, Professor at the University of Melbourne and Melbourne Business School. Cordelia is one of Australia's leading voices on gender and moral psychology, with a number of Book of the Year accolades under her belt from The Guardian and London Evening Standard. Today we're focusing on the role of gender in risk-taking in the workplace. And to start us off, Cordelia, what role does gender play in risk-taking? Well, when we think about gender and we think about risk, the first thing that might come to mind is a kind of think risk, think male phenomenon. So when we think about risk-taking, often our thoughts go back into the mists of evolutionary time and our ancestral past. And we think about male stags fighting for territory and for breeding opportunities, or we think of big elephant seals, uh, male ones uh, taking risks and fighting in order to gain lots of reproductive opportunities. And when we bring that back to business settings, for instance, it's interesting how our language also revolves around this sort of thinking about risk taking as being a male phenomenon. So we, we have expressions like grow some balls that we use for people who we think are showing insufficient amount of courage. We tell people to man up if we think they're being too fearful. And we even talk about big, hairy, audacious goals, which again is this idea of sort of courage being associated with manliness. But there's actually been uh, a lot of change in thinking about gender and risk-taking. So both in terms of those sort of evolutionary stories that we have about risk-taking and in terms of the psychology of risk-taking and whether men and women really are that different when it comes to their attitudes towards risk. Just to take us back for a moment, what I was hearing when you were talking about um, the way we talk about men and women in the workplace or these expressions we use is that language is very powerful and, and it's stating the obvious, I know, but I, I just want to draw people's attention to the fact that language is the way that we draw those gender differences at times. You talked about, you know, the big hairy risks, for example. What can you tell us about language when it comes to gender and risk taking? Yeah, I think language is is very powerful and I think more generally these these conceptions can really shape the way that we think about risk taking. So for example, I found it really interesting that when my children and I decided that it was time to get a kitten to keep our cat company and we drove out to the RSPCA and uh, we went up and we you know we found a kitten that was really cute and we wanted and we went up to sort of start the processing and uh, the woman at the RSPCA said, but well, do you still have the, the cat that you got from here previously? And we said, oh yes, Pippi, we still have Pippi and you know, she's really gonna enjoy having company. And the woman said, no, no, she will kill this kitten because it will be on her territory. And that the strength of the link in our minds between the kind of risk-taking and territoriality being a sort of male thing, it had never occurred to us that our, you know, our sweet female cat might also show uh, these kinds of uh, behaviors. And similarly, in, in the psychological literature, because people are thinking about maleness when they think about risk-taking, they've often overlooked female forms of risk-taking. So for example, uh, in research that I've been doing with, with collaborators, we found that when you kind of expand the range of risk-taking behaviours to include things that are more female or feminine forms of risk-taking, you actually find that the usual sex differences in risk-taking either disappear altogether or they actually reverse. So I think these sort of these, well, the way we frame risk-taking around gender is very powerful both in who we how we think about who's going to take risks and also even how scientists in those sort of supposedly objective studies actually investigate these kinds of phenomena. So what is the research telling us about how men and women take risks? Well, that's a great question. So one thing that's really um, been a new sort of 
turn, I suppose, in thinking about risk-taking is that we used to think that risk-taking was a uh, just a sort of unitary personality trait. So someone was a risk-taker or they're a risk-averse or they were somewhere in the middle. And so if you thought someone was a risk-taker, then you'd naturally assume that they take risks in all kinds of domains. So somebody who liked to do ski jumps, for example, would also be someone who is risk-taking uh, you know, in their financial trading, for instance. They'd be socially risk-taking. Uh, they'd be ethically risk-taking. They'd just be a risk-taker across the board. And similarly for someone who is risk-averse. But what the research has found is that risk-taking is very domain-specific. So you can be physically risk-taking, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be financially financially risk-taking, that you'll be interested in gambling, for instance, or that you'll be socially risk-taking. So that's a really uh, key, uh, key insight because there are some domains where, on average, although the differences don't tend to be very large, men are a little bit more risk-taking on average than women, but there are other domains, for example, social risk-taking, where that's, where that's not the case. And what, what this has really led to is a question of, well, why, you know, why is somebody more risk-taking in one domain than in another. What is it that creates these differences that make people very idiosyncratic in their risk-taking profile? And the answer seems to be that it's not risk attitude per se. So it's not that some people just love taking risks and other people don't. It's just that people perceive the benefits and risks differently and they perceive them differently for different kinds of domains. Uh, so, for example, entrepreneurs are often assumed to have a very sort of lo love-risking personality, but in fact, they, like most other people, have a sort of mostly negative attitude towards risk per se. They just perceive the likely benefits to be more positive and the likely risks to be, to be less. So when we're trying to understand why sometimes men may be more risk-taking than women or women may be more risk-taking than men, we have to start thinking about, well, what are the particular risks and what are the particular benefits for any individual in a situation? And could those be different for men and women just because of the fact that we live in a somewhat gendered society? And one really clear example of this, uh, not necessarily one that relates to the workplace, but uh, is, is around casual sex. So, for example, men will often report that they're more interested in uh, casual sex encounters, which is seen as a form of risk-taking, particularly in the sort of young adults who are often studied for these kinds of uh, these kinds of uh, research projects that are interested in casual sex. But when you look at the risks and benefits, they're actually unequal for men and women. So when you think about the benefits, uh, when sociologists have uh, quizzed uh, university students about their casual sex encounters, they've found that, that men are much more likely to have experienced an orgasm during these encounters than the females are and therefore to have enjoyed them more. And then when you think about the, the potential risks of casual sex, there are sort of both social and uh, physical risks that are greater for females. So when you think about the physical risks, women, of course, are the only ones who can get pregnant from these encounters. They're also often more vulnerable to sexually transmitted diseases. But there's also a greater social risk to casual sex from being a female because we sort of valorise men who have casual sex and we tend not to be uh, quite so positive about women who have a number of sexual partners. So the balance of risks and benefits is, is really quite unequal when we're thinking about casual sex because we because of sort of physical differences between the sexes, but also because of the gender 
norms that we have around casual sex. And I think that's just a very illustrative example about how when we look at patterns of men and women taking risks you know, in their personal lives or in the workplace, we need to think very carefully, are we seeing fewer women take risks as women you know, don't have the balls for that kind of risk taking? Or is it because there's in an, in, in an inequality of both likely benefits and likely risks of that particular activity? I imagine then we probably um, quite rapidly process those benefits and risks when we're weighing something up and maybe not fully aware of having made that decision. We just make a decision based on, you know, a whole lot of those sort of probabilities. But I'm sure there'd be quite some value in us being able to stop and think, why have I made that decision to go towards something or come away from it, you know, I wouldn't have realised perhaps I was so consciously or unconsciously weighing up the benefits versus the risks, for example. That's right. I think often our risk taking, you know, some some people may sort of bring out the spreadsheet and start sort of trying to assess the risks and benefits, but often it's much more intuitive than that. And there's a lot of research, uh, the kinds of things that we teach in managerial judgment, for example, in the MBA program around how uh, your sort of perception of the risks of particular kinds of decision can be biased in, in particular kinds of ways. Um, so I think that's one thing to be really aware of. For example, some, some researchers talk about risks as being feelings. So if we feel positively towards something, a particular kind of risky activity, then we'll t- kind of boost up the benefits that we think will come from it and we'll downgrade the risks that we'll think will come from it. Or we may, if we really want to go for a risky activity, we might fall prey to confirmation bias where we tend to look at evidence that will support our point of view, try and avoid people or evidence that will go against what we want to do. Um, But I think also to bring it back to the gender question, sometimes it probably can be a little bit conscious. So for example, one of the examples in which our sort of traditional stories about males being risk takers and females being risk averse is asking for things like flexibility in the workplace. So we often talk about, you know, women being reluctant to negotiate, women not wanting to ask for things. Uh, And one of the reasons for that is that people respond more negatively to women who negotiate and ask for things for themselves. But what is within a female, our sort of norms of what's appropriate for women to do is is to ask uh, for things on the behalf of others and also, you know, to, to be to be a good mother, for instance. So when men are contemplating the question of, you know, I want to ask for more flexible work practices so I have more time for my family, they're going against two norms here instead of just one. So they're going against the norm of the ideal worker who's always available for their employer, but they're also going against the norm that they, that they should be concerned with those kinds of more feminine concerns with uh, caring for their family and qualitative interviews with men who've, who've wanted to uh, ask for more flexible work show that they're aware that there may be this sort of backlash against them asking for, for this kind of flexibility in the workplace. So they're, they're less, they feel less inclined to take that risk of asking for it, which is something that, of course, many women do take the risk of asking for. But that's just a, you know, a nice example of where uh, the sort of different balance of potential risks and benefits can lead to different kinds of behaviour. And you spoke about norms and it makes me think how much of uh, all, all of the sort of 
gender biases we might have as much as learned behaviour and um, how early that tends to start. I'm thinking at the moment of going shopping for a little niece and nephew and the the whole toy shop is so divided between, you know, things for little boys and things for little girls. And uh, I'm struck having thought of your work by how early on uh, those norms are set up for us and the impact, I suppose, then of risk-taking. So I imagine women are taught early on that certain risks are, you know, not to be taken as a woman. Um, similarly, men might be taught that they should be taking more risks. Is that true? Is it just an assumption that I'm, I'm drawing? Well, I think that's a really interesting question because, you know, people often say, well, you know, toys are just toys. What's the big deal? It doesn't really matter what kids are playing with. Um, but I think it is really interesting the way that the, the very gendered toys that we see are reinforcing those stereotypes that, 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 um, that males are sort of bad but bold, as psychologists have called it, whereas females are weak and weak but wonderful. And although to me there isn't a great deal of evidence showing that sort of developmentally these toys have a lot of effect um, in terms of the sort of skills and expertise that children are developing, they certainly are reinforcing those gender stereotypes. And when we think about gender stereotypes uh, around risk-taking in the workplace, they can have two kinds of effect. So psychologists refer to stereotypes as being uh, either descriptive or prescriptive. So descriptive is this is what you know boys and men are like, this is what women and girls are like, whereas prescriptive stereotypes relate around what boys and men should be like or shouldn't be like. And we can see with risk-taking the effects of both the sort of descriptive and prescriptive elements of stereotypes. So, for example, um, because of this lens of thinking that males are the risk takers, for instance, this might lead to biased evaluations when we're looking at, um, for example, someone who's pitching um, pitching a project as an entrepreneur. So there's sort of controlled research showing that the exact same idea pitched by a male is more likely to be sort of seen as being meriting funding than the same idea pitched by a female. Um, but there are also prescriptive elements of it. So there's a little bit of research now showing that when you give people vignettes describing either a man or a woman in a typically masculine role, making a risk-taking, a risky decision that actually in the end doesn't pay off, it, the, the female tends to be judged more harshly for that than the male does. So this idea that you know, we sort of allow more license to men to be risk-taking than we do women means that we all punish women a bit more when that risk-taking goes wrong. There was also an interesting study with Turkish MBA students showing that when entrepreneurs were described in a sort of traditionally masculine way as being aggressive, as being risk-taking, as being autonomous, the female students in the class, when they were then shown um, a description of a business opportunity in a complex case, were, were less likely to see a kind of business opportunity in that case. But when beforehand they were shown a description of entrepreneurs that were that were described in either a gender neutral way, so entrepreneurs are you know they're creative, they're well informed, or they were described in a sort of more traditionally feminine way as being caring and making relationships. In those instances, the female MBA students were at least or sometimes even more likely to see a business opportunity in that case. So here's an example of how those gender stereotypes around, uh, you know, what what fits the sort of our ideal of the entrepreneur, is it this sort of very masculine image or is it something more neutral or feminine, can actually influence how people are perceiving the, the business opportunities in front of them. So it sounds like how those things are framed uh, will affect the outcome. So if we can learn to frame them a bit differently, it might help neutralise some of that 
gender bias? Would that be true? Yeah, there is some promising data suggesting that particularly when roles, for example, are just, you know, it's not that the roles are being misrepresented in any way, but when they're just framed in a slightly less masculine way, they can be more appealing. They can draw in more female candidates, for instance. What else might you advise people, be they males negotiating for flexibility in the workplace or females perhaps negotiating for a salary rise, um, what advice could you give them to, to consider as they're going into those situations? What might they do or think about? There are some suggestions, for example, around women and negotiations. So um, suggestions, for example, is, you know, try and negotiate in a way that's more compatible with gender norms. So, you know, you talk about how what you're asking for will help you benefit your team, benefit the organisation, for instance. Um, but in general, a lot of people are very reluctant to give this sort of advice or give it grudgingly because it's felt that the owner should fall on the organisation to, to hear people's negotiations fairly and measure them against the same, the same kinds of yardstick and, and, and to a similar degree, you know, uh, everyone deserves the opportunity to, to work flexibly if that's something that the workplace can allow regardless of, you know, particular ideas and norms around wh whose responsibility it is to take care of children. Every child has a mother and a father and, um, you know, it's really the onus is on the organisation to, to hear those petitions for flexible work uh, with an open mind and, and not unfairly uh, withhold it from someone just because they happen to be a father rather than a mother, for instance. We'll leave it there for just a moment, Cordelia, and pause now for a short break. To those chosen to come here and to the organisations they represent, congratulations and welcome. You're making a clear announcement that you want to do more achieve more and be more. While you're with us, you'll be among the best, learning from the best. You'll leave changed and then be called upon to lead change. So to you we say, welcome to Melbourne Business School. Welcome to the world class. Welcome back and today we're talking with Cordelia Fine, Professor at the University of Melbourne and Melbourne Business School. Cordelia, picking up where we left off, can you tell me more about uh, organisational responsibility when it comes to risk-taking and gender? So we were touching on the fact that it's really not up to the person so much when they're trying to negotiate something for themselves that might be a bit risky, but it, the onus is somewhat on the organisation to make sure it's a level playing field. Yes, I think that's uh, I think that's an important important point and something important for organisations to focus on, particularly when we're sort of hearing a popular story about women not rising up in organisations because they're not willing to take the necessary risks to to progress in their careers. And I think we really need to be careful about drawing those kinds of conclusions, particularly in the light of the sort of understanding from psychological research showing that it's really the perceived risks and benefits that lie behind why somebody will take a one person will take a risk and another person won't. So if you think about even decisions, risky decisions, such as what kind of role or career do I want to have, um, you know, are, are the benefits, the likely benefits of that going to be equal even for men and women contemplating those careers? I mean, there was a report uh, came out not that long ago looking at the best paying jobs for men and women in Australia and it showed that, for example, female neurosurgeons take home just 56% of their male counterparts' salary. So if we're not even seeing equality in the kind of, you know, money that people are earning from these high-risk, high-competitive 
um, kinds of professions. It's, it's not surprising that we may see sex differences and who's willing to take the risks to try and pursue those kinds of careers. And the obvious, obvious implication of this for organisations to start thinking about well, are, are we creating an environment in which men and women, uh, and obviously we can expand that to include other kinds of uh, other kinds of social groups who may be underrepresented? Are we offering the same benefits, likely benefits to them, to taking risks? Are we offering them actually the same risk-taking opportunities? So people suggest that, for example, uh, you take an audit at pay to see if there's a gender pay gap, and in particular focus on bonuses, which uh, can show uh, much less equality than sort of standard uh, wages. Think about also who's getting the, the high risk but the glamorous projects that are necessary for career progression, whereas who, who, who's getting the kinds of sort of more housework kind of roles. So for example, in law, they talk about pink files and, and blue files and how to make sure that those get actually get distributed a bit more evenly. And taking gender out of the question, how can people be more effective taking risks? I think that's also a great question because there are so many important ways in which people have to consider and contemplate and make decisions about risk uh, sort of personally within their careers, whether it's um, speaking up against the majority or against uh, someone senior to you if you think a, a mistake is being made, which can be a, a very, very difficult thing to do. People can, it's easy to underestimate how difficult that is. Um, or of course, if you think that something unethical is going on in your organisation, that's another, to speak up against that uh, is something which uh, can be really quite a significant risk. So for instance, when I teach ethical leadership um, at the business school, that's one thing that we try and focus on is if you want to speak up against something unethical or you want to try and, for people who are more senior in the organisation, if you want to implement sort of positive ethical change, how do you manage the risk of that as, as best you can? And it's really the key lies in preparation. So we follow something called the Giving Voice to Values curriculum that was developed by Mary Gentile, who's now at the Darden School of Business. And the idea of this is really to look very closely at this particular situation where you're seeing a, a sort of conflict between values. And, and the idea of it is that often when it comes to things going wrong ethically in an organisation, it's not because people haven't, it's a very murky grey dilemma of, you know, competing principles and competing consequences. So of course, those kinds of ethical dilemmas do exist. Often it's a case of, you know, that what's happening is wrong, but you just don't know quite how to how to stop it from happening, how to speak out. And that's what this this curriculum is really about. So the students uh, get practice in identifying what's at stake for all the key parties and then understanding what the reasons and rationalizations for that unethical behavior are. And this actually requires having some insight into the kinds of biases that can go into evaluating risks. So uh, things that are very tangible in here and now are weighted more strongly and more strongly than they should be than things that are a bit more abstract uh, and that are sort of distant and hypothetical in and you know off in the future like all the you know the shareholders who will you know lose money if this should all come to light and so on so having having done an assessment of the kind of reasons and rationalizations and biases that may be at play the next step is to think about the kinds of levers and arguments that you can uh, use and that really depends on who you are and where you are in your organisation. So in terms of dealing with that risk in a way that's most comfortable and most safe for you, you think about, well, 
you know, who do I have ex access to in my organisation? What's my level of power? Am I very junior? Am I very senior? What's it, you know, who's, who do I have and what do I have responsibility for? And then what kind of person am I? Do I prefer to, to do things, for example, through written correspondence? Do I work much better face to face? And just thinking about, um, what kind of mode of communication is going to be most most comfortable and most suitable for me in terms of my particular skills and personality and then coming up with the most powerful and persuasive response you have to those reasons and rationalizations for that unethical behavior that's going on scripting it rehearsing it getting peer coaching in it so that you're really prepared uh, when you go out uh, into the workplace for the kinds of values conflicts that can really be very, you know, they're just part of being in in organisations. Everyone will encounter them. They're actually, you know, you can see them as just part of your managerial skill dealing with these parts of, part, dealing with these kinds of conflicts, uh, but having a script and strategy for dealing with them in a way that reduces the risk and is as effective as it can be. You mentioned there too about levers. I imagine one of the things to consider is how we might be consciously or unconsciously rewarding some of these behaviours or things that, you know, we talked about bonuses, uh, people getting paid for uh, achieving one thing which may go counter to some of the things you want to achieve perhaps better ethically for, for that organisation. That's absolutely right. And, you know, part of the ethical leadership program is sort of doing an audit of uh, both the informal and formal ethical culture within your organisation. So exactly what you say, what kind of behaviour um, is getting rewarded? Um, is it just outcomes that are looked at, but or is it also processes, but also these sort of informal cultural as well? So who are the heroes of the organisation? What are the stories of the organisation? And do they tend to valorise unethical behaviour or do they valorise ethical behaviour? And these, th these things are very, very important because, you know, norms, norms are very, very powerful. This question I've been wanting to ask, did testosterone cause the global financial crisis? Right, so this is the idea that uh, the reason, part of the reason that we had a global financial crisis is because of the high levels of testosterone in the mostly young men who were um, uh, working on the trading floors and in, in finance in those areas. Um, and, and the sort of scientific idea here is that when things go well for these young men, they show an increase in testosterone, which increases their risk taking, and then they, they, they earn more money, and then the testosterone increases, and there's this kind of positive feedback loop uh, that all goes disastrously wrong. Uh, some colleagues and I have been trying to look at this data quite closely in a systematic way, and while we haven't finished our analysis yet, uh, we do find that there isn't, it's not really looking very convincing that testosterone itself, the level that you have circulating in your blood relates to how likely you are to take financial risks. What's a bit more open-ended is whether these increases in testosterone might cause people to be more financially risk-taking. But one thing that's interesting here, and it kind of comes back to this point of how our, our sort of think male, think risk concepts influences scientific research as well as our popular ideas, is that that kind of research uh, tends to be done with men rather than women. So, of course, women have testosterone too. It influences women's behaviour as well. There are some suggestions that have been made that women are actually more responsive to increases in testosterone than men are. So we just don't know whether this would also apply 
to women and as it might to men as well. And if we're talking about changes in testosterone, then the absolute level of testosterone in the blood uh, doesn't seem quite as important. But I think maybe the key point to say about all this research uh, is that it's um, it's not investigating the role of testosterone in risk-taking with other people's money, which uh, was obviously the case in the global financial crisis. And how do you think we're doing in Australia in terms of women and risk-taking? What's your thoughts about that? I think it's always really important, especially when you can hear depressing statistics and studies, is to think about how far we've come. I mean, if you think just 100 or so years ago, you know, we had neuroscientists saying that women's nervous systems weren't really designed to vote. And now, of course, we've had our first female um, prime minister uh, we think about the kinds of physical risk taking that we is now quite ordinary for girls and young women to do. We had, you know, we had that young woman who uh, sailed sailed around the world in a in a boat. Uh, and while these kinds of forms of female risk taking aren't unexceptional, they they're certainly sort of occurring on a more and more frequent basis. And I think we just we just have to look back and think how far we've come in the last hundred years. And I think that can make us feel really positive about and open minded about what we might see in a hundred years' time and the kind of female risk-taking and the benefits to the country that we may see from that going forward. Cordelia, thank you for your insights today. It's been fascinating to uncover some of the biases that apply to risk-taking and how we can overcome them in the workplace. For more on organisational psychology and management, visit our website at mbs.edu.